as I said, we are finally into chapter 16 of the book of Romans. In September of 2012, almost two years ago, we began a trek through the book of Romans. I said then, if you were awake two years ago, I said then that if Paul's letter to the church in Rome isn't his most important letter, it's certainly his most influential letter. It's also his longest letter, 16 chapters, with much in it. It's very weighty, heavy, lots of stuff taking place in the 16 chapters. And so to help us in that walkthrough, we divided it into five sections. Section number one we called the problem. What was the problem? If you remember, humanity shares a common problem, and that is we've all rebelled against God and we've chosen our glory over his, with no exception. Every man, woman, child, regardless of ethnicity and regardless of epoch or era, shares this problem. It's all wrapped up in Romans 3.23 where Paul writes this, for all, oh, I'll turn around, we've lost that. For all have sinned, is it back? Look at that, I'm dancing, man. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the problem which led to section two, which was the provision. We called it the provision. What is the provision? The provision of God. God didn't leave us to bask or die in our problem. In fact, he entered our problem through the person of Jesus. Jesus doing what we can't do. Not simply what we couldn't do, what we can't do. Jesus came and he lived the perfect life. He died the sacrificial death and he killed the grave. He conquered death by raising from it all things that need to be ours. His perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his conquering of death need to be ours. How do we get those things? We respond by faith to the gracious offering of them. All of this is wrapped up in Romans 5, verse 10, where Paul writes, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So problem solved through the provision of Jesus if we receive the provision of Jesus by faith. But this then led to the section that we dealt with that included the now but not yet aspect of our lives. We're here now, we still live in this flesh now, doing those things that we don't want to do and not doing those things that we do want to do, right? We have this battle going on, a battle against flesh and spirit. So this led to section three, a section that we called the power. What is the power? The power is the Holy Spirit of whom Paul succinctly and nicely wraps up in Romans 8.26 by saying the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. But then, all of a sudden, Paul presses this pause button. And we got to chapter 9 to chapter 11 where Paul presumes some questions that a group of people would have been asking, specifically the people of Israel, of whom God made a lot of promises to before Jesus arrived. So what do we do with that? How do we reconcile that? Paul's answer was to the nation of Israel, you had many great advantages. Many great advantages. The problem is you found the end in the advantages and not what the advantages pointed to. You got really fired up about the gifts and you forgot the one the gifts pointed to. Paul wraps this section up, what we call the predicament and the perplexity or the perplexity and the predicament in Romans 10 where he writes this, 
for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they, this is the people of Israel, did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law. For righteousness, and this is a really important word, to everyone, meaning that Jesus was always the plan of God for Jewish people and Gentile people as well. For everyone, Jesus was always the plan, and the plan was that we would all receive salvation by and through the mercy of Jesus. Everyone saved by the mercy of God through his son Jesus. That's always been the plan. And he reminds the people of Israel, that's always been the plan. It's always been the plan that we would all be saved by mercy, and that's how we're saved, which led finally to section five. Section five, what we call the practice. The practice, really the practical outpouring. What does the practical outpouring of a life look like that has been inundated and avalanched with the mercy of God? Well, the answer is in Romans 12, verse 1, where Paul writes this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. As Matt so nicely summed up last week in the second part of chapter 15, we are all priests, every single one of us who has come to faith in and through the work of Jesus. We are all priests called to offer a sacrifice like any good priest is called to, right? We serve the high priest who gave the ultimate sacrifice, but we are not greater than our teacher. We liken ourselves after our teacher, so we as priests under the great high priest offer a sacrifice. What is that sacrifice? Us, ourselves, nothing less than ourselves. How do we sacrifice sacrifice ourselves? Through our joyful obedience to our master and our savior and our Lord Jesus. That's Romans. You know Romans now. The five Ps, really a couple extra ones in there in the fourth section. And now we finalize this walkthrough. We finish today this almost two-year journey by looking at chapter 16, a long and unique chapter where Paul does three different things. The first thing that he does in the first 16 verses is he gives his final greetings. Let's read verses 1 to 16. Pray for me as I do. There are a lot of nutjobby names in here. I'm just going to say it. Unless one of them is yours, and then I'm in trouble. And we've made fun of names here before with people who have been in the, on the, in the congregation and they're enjoying themselves now at First Baptist. I commend to you. <laughs> I commend to you. Our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life. To whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. 
Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Apenitus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Adronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, my fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family, family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus and Phlegon and Hermes and Potravus and Hermas and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister in Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss, to which all the single men said, Amen. Amen. Exactly. <laughs> all of the churches greet you. Thank you very much. I, I got through that 16 verses. I'm appreciate that. Thank you. Don't clap. This is one of those texts, these 16 verses specifically, that tempt us to gloss over because it's a list of names, it's sort of like a genealogy like you would find at the beginning of chapter one. It's sort of like that. You kind of just quickly go through. He's just greeting some people. However, if we choose to fall to that temptation, we miss some really significant, nice, and, and very helpful takeaways in the midst of verses like this. There are many takeaways. Let me offer you three that we find in these 16 verses. Here's the first. Commendation is right and good. Commendation is right and good. Verse 1 begins with a commendation. That word commend there that you see in verse 1 is a word that literally means to praise. And what Paul does in verse 1 is he commends this person that he mentions, Phoebe, whom he describes as a servant. More specifically and more probably a deaconess. She is a deaconess. Her name is Phoebe and Paul instructs the Romans to welcome her. Most likely, and most commentators agree on this, she is probably the one who delivered this letter to the church in Rome. So she has come, she's delivered this letter to them, and Paul says, welcome her in a way worthy. Really note that. In a way worthy and help her with whatever she may need. Now why? Why should they do that? Well, because Paul says she's a patron. She's been a patron to many. She's been a patron to me. She's been a patron to many. And so welcome her as a worthy saint. Now, what does that word patron mean? Well, interestingly, what many commentators and those who have written some books on the topic suggest is that she helped out ministries by way of her means. More than likely, Phoebe had some bucks. And she used the bucks to help people in ministry for the extension of the gospel. She did, in fact, model what many people did in the ministry of Jesus most often, at least how we have it recorded in the gospels, women and how they aided the ministry of Jesus by way of their means. For example, in Luke chapter 8, we read this. Soon afterward, Jesus went on through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And also some women 
who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, get this, who provided for them out of their means. John Reinhardt, in his book, Gospel Patrons, defines gospel patrons as people who resource and come alongside others to help proclaim the gospel. And what we seem to have here is that Phoebe, in addition to her being a courier of sorts for Paul, has come alongside Paul and others, as I've suggested, and helped them out by way of her means. I have the great joy of knowing some Phoebes personally, men and women who are true patrons in this ministry and have brought nothing but joy to my life. And I, like Paul, some of you are here right now and you're looking at me. Some of you listen to me. You're the one or two who download things during the week. And so I say to you, whether you're here today or whether you are listening throughout the week, I, like Paul, commend you as worthy saints. You're worthy saints. In verse Paul, in verse Paul, in verse 4, Paul also commands Prisca, sometimes referred to as Priscilla. We'll see that reference a little bit later, but he commends Prisca and Aquila as well, in addition to Phoebe, a key couple in the early church. We're first introduced to this key couple in Acts 18, where Paul meets them for the first time in Corinth. They, like Paul, were tent makers, but they were tent makers to simply gain a wage because what they were really dedicated to was the proclamation of the gospel. In fact, they knew the gospel so well, we read this in Acts 18 in the aftermath of some teaching that Apollos, a great teacher, Apollos teaching, they pulled him aside. Let me read the text. Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. I like what Paul says, by the way, at the end of verse 4 when writing, that it's not only he, he who gives thanks for them, but notice there, all of the Gentile churches do as well. Westside, can I challenge us to be the type of people that other churches are blessed by and thankful for? Can we be that? Let's be that. Let's be people that all of the churches are thankful for, individually and corporately. Let's be that. Also, and I say this to those of you who may be newer to the Bible, here's what you also need to know about Paul's commendation here in Romans 16. He begins with a commendation, as I've said, to Phoebe and Priscilla and Aquila. But this commendation here in Romans 16 is not unique. It's not the exception. It's not the exception. Uh, it's something that he does in all of his letters for the most part. In fact, some of his letters, he spends a great deal of time and space commending certain individuals, a couple of the more well-known places, one of them being Philippians 2. The second half of Philippians 2, Paul commends two people specifically. One is Timothy, whom he says of Timothy, I have no one like him. No one like him. He, he's my son in the faith. I have no one like him. He also commends a, a guy named Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus, whom he describes as a fellow worker and a soldier and a, and a partner in ministry and a minister of the gospel. 
But in addition to that, if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the second part of 2 Corinthians 8, Paul commends Titus. Titus there saying about Titus that he's famous among all the churches for the preaching of the gospel. And you know why I highlight that? Because this kind of commendation from one minister to another is very, very rare today. It's, it's too rare. But what we see in Paul's life here is there's, there's no jealousy, there's no insecurity on his part, just commendation and praise. I want to be that. I, I so want to be that. And, I, and again, I want us as a church to be that. Every once in a while, a person will say to me, you know what, I, I checked out another church, your competition. I'm not in competition against any church. I, I'm not competing against the church. I'm competing against their enemy but I'm certainly not competing against anybody else in any other church who proclaims the gospel. We pray for them all the time. We want the church to be successful. And that's why we do what we do. I'm fired up that right now, right now, and you should be pleased because you're a part of this. Right now, BJ, one of our apprentices, is preaching up at Whistler. And, and Matt Menzel, our, our bald one who's great proclaimer of the gospel, <laughs> he's preaching over at Willingdon right now. And Matt Glezos is our children's guy, busy week coming up. He's preaching over in the North Shore right now. And I love that. I love that. I love that we can bless. I want to be a blessing. I want us to be this way. No competition. None at all. Let's be commenders. Let's be praisers of people. Let's lift them up. Paul also commands not just individuals. He commands churches too. He boasts about things like a church's giving or faith or service or steadfastness in the face of suffering. We saw that last week where Paul commends the churches in Macedonia for their giving and their commitment, giving out of their poverty. Paul, in fact, was so committed to commending that he actually got on the Corinthian church for their lack of it. Writing this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I have been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to those, to these, excuse me, to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. Now, why am, I, why am I spending this amount of time here? And why am I highlighting this? And why do I think, more importantly, Paul is one who exemplifies this and models this so much? Well, do you know what commendation shows and therefore why it's so important? It shows a true understanding of the grace we have received and the assurance and identity that we have in Christ. That's why it's so important. And a lack of commendation evidences the opposite. When we feel we are competing or we can't point out the good things that are going on in people's lives, if we can't get excited about something great going on in another's life, maybe a greatness, so to speak, that we don't see in our lives, if we can't commend that, then we have not truly tasted in fullest measure what the gospel is and who we are in Jesus. That's why it's so important, both individually and as, as a church. And again, may we be a commending church especially to those who have given their lives to gospel proclamation. You know, as we go into the summer, let me get very practical with you. Can I encourage you to commend your community group leaders? Like, take the time to commend them. 
your ministry team leaders, the band, nursery workers, all those, everyone who serves this ministry to commend our local missionaries, those people who are part of this ministry, but their local ministries, part of local missionary agencies in and around Vancouver, those who have gone to places and are now in places like Africa or India or China, to commend mission team members who have given up time and money to train up others, I would suggest that it's not only good to commend, it's wrong not to. May we be a commending people. An additional reason to commend is found in my second takeaway coming out of this, and that is for ministry and the Christian life are hard. Notice a couple of things in our text. In verse 4, Paul writes that Prisca and Aquila risked their necks for my life. In verse 6, Paul highlights how Mary worked hard for you. In verse 12, he says the same of Persis. In verse 7, he describes Adronicus and Junia as fellow prisoners. Ministry in the Christian life is hard. Is it always hard? No, there are seasons where it is full of much peace, and there are seasons of great celebration, but there are seasons that are, no other way to put it, hard. In Philippians 2, remember I talked about Epaphroditus. Uh, Paul commends Timothy and Epaphroditus. One of the things he says about Epaphroditus in Philippians 2 verse 30, it won't be on the screen, is he writes that he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to compete, complete what was lacking in your service to me. But notice also how Paul describes his ministry, laying it out in 2 Corinthians 11, this is his ministry describing it this way. I was on frequent journeys. I was in danger from rivers. I was in danger from robbers. I was in danger from my own people. I was in danger from Gentiles. I was danger in the city, danger in the wilderness. I was in danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. The safest place to be is not in the center of the will of God. Let me repeat that because you may have an opposite precious moment poster on your wall at home. The safest place to be is not in the center of the will of God. In contrast, the center of the will of God may be a life marked with danger and toil and hardship and sleeplessness and hunger and thirst and cold and exposure. That may be the center of the will of God for you. If you're writing things down, write this down as well. God will give us many things that are beyond our ability to bear. He will. It's a promise. Why? So that we stop depending upon ourselves. One of the biggest lies in the church, and I hear it all the time, God won't give us anything beyond our ability to bear. It's a lie. It's a lie. I've said this all the time over the years. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul lays out, we were distressed even for our lives. We had things going on in our lives that were beyond our ability to bear. Why? So that we would not rely on ourselves, but God who raises the dead. God will. It's a promise. So that we again would not rely on ourselves, but him. 
Great sales pitch, I know, if you're considering Christianity. Great sales pitch, I get it. But I'm okay making this point for a number of reasons. First, because it shames me. It shames me. And there are times where I definitely need to be shamed. And second, because I think we have so bought into the idea of Christianity as being a light and easy burden that we now make statements like, I don't go on missions because I may get deli belly without batting an eye. And nobody questions it. But I'm also okay making this point because, and most importantly, it's so vital. See, I want you to just check this out. On the day after, the next day, after Paul was stoned in the city of Lystra, this is what it says of Paul in Acts chapter 14. That he went back into the city and he strengthened the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith. Now, just keep that on there if you don't mind for a little bit. Why do they need to be encouraged to continue in the faith? Well, because their leader just got stoned. He comes in the next day, beaten, bruised, swollen, probably bleeding still, to some degree, bandaged up. He goes back into the same city where he has been stoned. He brings the disciples around to strengthen and encourage them. And how does he do it? saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. How in the heck is that encouraging and strengthening? Do you know how? Because the Christian life is hard. But if we don't think it should be, do you know what happens when we go through trials and testings and tribulations? We want out. That's why this point is so important. We get disillusioned. We want to leave the faith. We get ticked at God. Or we like Job's wife or like Job's friends. We think God's against me. But if we deal with the trials and testings and tribulations that do come in our lives, because again, if you want to be Christ-like, you will encounter them. And you go into them not surprised at the fiery ordeal that's going on in your life as something unusual is happening to you, as Peter talks about. But again, recognize that it's through many trials and tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God, you will be strengthened and encouraged. That's why this is so important. That's why, even though I know this doesn't sell in 2014, it's important for us to understand that the Christian life is hard. Is it only hard? No. Do I believe that it is also joy-filled and full of assurance and hope and strength? With all of my life, I believe that. And not in contrast, in syncretism with those things. For we have joy and assurance and hope and peace, not in the removal of these times, but in spite of these times. Because the Spirit of God is poured out in our lives. And we are a peace-filled people beyond a recognition from a world standpoint because of what the Spirit is doing in our lives. So I believe with all of my heart, all of those things are a part of the Christian life. It's an abundant life. It's a joy-filled life. But Westside, it's also a hard life. It's also a hard life. 
It's so hard that Jesus says, before you sign up, man, count the cost. Because you don't want to start building something and have to stop halfway through and walk away. Like, think about that. It's very tempting for me to try to sugarcoat this. It is. But Westside, we follow a savior that they nailed to a piece of wood. As I've said before, everyone today loves the Dalai Lama, but they killed Jesus. Because the Christian life is hard, let me offer a third takeaway from this text. And that are, that is, excuse me, good friends and partners are necessary. Paul had some good homies. No other way of putting it. I know, again, that's my streak coming out. Yeah, I just can't get that, that out of me. He greets many of them here in the first 16 verses, doesn't he? But, and just think about this. Uh, he's never been to Rome. And he knows these people and he greets them. He also passes on greetings from the people that are with him. Take a look at verses 21 to 23. Timothy, he highlights, my fellow worker, he greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater and my kinsmen. I, Tertius, he who wrote this letter greets you, meaning he, he dictated this letter to, to Tertius. Uh, Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cortus, they greet you. Paul had friends, and he had co-workers, and he had partners. Why? Because ministry is hard. Paul was not a lone ranger. He had people with him. He had good friends who helped in the journey that is the Christian life. Friends who financed him, who risked their lives for him, who went to jail with him, that became surrogate moms to him. As we read in verse 13 of Rufus's mom, your mom became a mom to me. How are friends and partners like this made? You know, I thought a lot about that question this week, especially over the last couple of days specifically. How are friends like this made? I think the only answer is by sharing a vision that is transcendent, a vision that goes beyond ourselves. Friends like this are made when we share the common vision that is the Christian life and the proclamation of the gospel. The best friends that I have ever made have all come from those I partnered with ministry in, not even close. Whether it was early on in my Christian journey when I came to Christ at 17 and started working at camp, started working with teams there, dedicated to the proclamation of the gospel, friends that are friends today, still many of them, but it carried on thereafter. Friends made on volunteer teams or missions teams or today on elders teams and staffs. People that you don't just have fun with, but people that you cry with and pray with and share with and, and share not only victories with, but share failures with. And don't you want, when you read this list of these individuals that Paul highlights here, don't you want to hang with men and women like this? Don't you want to be a man or a woman like this? A patron of grace. Don't you want to be a patron of grace? One who is willing to risk their very life? One who takes someone in and nurtures them? 
One who so believes in something that they are willing to go to prison over it? Don't you want to be like that? Don't you want to spend time with individuals like that? Or is our view of the Christian life so domesticated that it bears little resemblance to what Jesus seemed to have in mind when he said, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Well, that's section one of this last chapter of Romans, Paul's final greetings, where he highlights some friends of his and partners, but he moves from friends to foes in the next section that lays out Paul's final warning. Take a look at verses 17 to 20. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all. See the commendation of the Roman church here on Paul, on behalf of Paul? Love that. So that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent, as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This final warning is an appropriate one. If you remember what we've looked at over the previous 16 or so chapters, Paul has painstakingly um, highlighted and laid out what the gospel is. Like no other letter, he's gone into the greatest details. He's presumed objection after objection after objection. He's taken people back to the Old Testament scriptures, and he's evidence there coming out of them why God has always had this plan in mind that one was coming who would be the Messiah and bring fulfillment to both Jew and Gentile. He's laid it out. He, he's, he's done a masterful job in laying out the gospel, laying out the gospel, the only true gospel. But now, as he ends this letter, he spends time warning them of those who would come in amongst them, people who would teach a contrary gospel. And what does Paul say to them in verse 17 specifically? What is his final warning? First of all, notice in the first part of verse 17, they're to watch out and they are to identify them. Verse 17 sounds very familiar and similar to Paul's final words to the elders at the church of Ephesus recorded for us in Acts 20 when he says this and just kind of listen to the similar language and warning. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So Paul says, take note, watch out, identify, they're coming, they will rise, on, um, rise amongst you. And then what does he say? We see at the very end of verse 17, he says this, we are to avoid them. Doesn't mean that we don't extend grace and love or stop praying or caring or talking to them. But what we, vo- what we need to avoid is the type of relationship that suggests that there's no problem with what you're doing or teaching. Can't have that type of relationship. By the way, just if you don't mind, put your eyes back in verse 17. Did you pick up the apparent contradiction in verse 17? There is a contradiction there, at least on the surface it seems so. See, on one hand, what does Paul say? He says to watch out for those who cause divisions. See it there? But then he instructs, He instructs them to divide from them. 
So divide from division-causing persons. How do we make sense of this? Well, first, especially for those of you who have been around for the last month or two, the issue here is not the same as in chapter 14 where Paul dealt with different convictions about non-essential things. These are essential things that Paul is talking about. There he said in verse 5 of chapter 14 that each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. There was no talk of chap- in chapter 14 about avoiding people. The whole point of chapter 14 was bringing the strong and the weak together in unity and mutual respect. But now here, in chapter 16, the approach is radically different. Here Paul says, avoid them. Divide from them. Why? How? Coming out of chapter 14, well, most importantly, because they are promoting doctrine contrary to what they had been taught. He could have said, and this is common today in the church, well, nobody has all the truth, and everybody has a piece of it, and unity is more important than truth, so don't divide. That's very common today in the church. And it sounds good, doesn't it? And unity is a good thing. Even Paul has emphasized that. Paul cares about unity. In fact, his first command in verse 17 is, watch out for those who cause divisions. So Paul is is pro-unity, but that's not the way he responds to this situation. Instead, for the sake of unity, that is truth-based unity. Paul tells the church to avoid them. Again, why? Because these individuals serve themselves and not Jesus, as you see in verse 18. Which is a stark contrast to the people in verse 14 who served and brought glory to God by not partaking or by partaking. And therefore, Paul says, these should be avoided. As verse 20 says, in context, they ultimately serve Satan. Even though they look good, they do. Nice hair, hipster frames, man. Look really cool. And they sound good too, flattery, which is the antithesis of commendation. Flattery is false praise. So they sound good, and in their sounding good, what does Paul say? They prey on the naive, the immature, and they serve themselves. They're not serving Jesus. And therefore, Paul says we need to avoid them. They're not on the same team By the way, few things are harder today in the church because of the backlash you receive, yet more necessary than pointing out these people. Why is it so necessary? Because nothing less than salvation is at stake. See, here's the thing, Westside. You can't be saved by a contrary gospel. It, it, and it's, it's more important. So it's not simply we got to be nice to everyone. Yes, I agree in that, but their point is, Paul's point, our point that we need to get out of this, is there's something greater at stake that we need to be dedicated to, we need to be aware of. Because eternity, again, is at stake in this, and this is why Paul ends here in his final warning highlighting this. Which leads nicely to Paul's final doxology. Take a look at verses 25 to 27. 
So what does Paul talk about in the leading up of these final verses? We need to be committed to the gospel. And how does he end now in his final doxology? He reminds us of the gospel. This is Paul's longest doxology in all of his letters, and it's a beautiful one. What does doxology mean, by the way? It comes from the Greek word doxa. Dox is a word that has gone through some transformations over time. Doxa originally meant an opinion. Your opinion of someone was your doxology. Over time, doxa came to refer to someone's reputation or power, and eventually it came to mean to honor or glory, the honor or glory bestowed on someone. So ultimately, and to the greatest heights and depths and breaths, the one who is deserving our doxa is none other than God. And in this, and in this grand finale, befitting Jesus in the gospel by which we come to know him, this doxa brings the book of Romans to a powerful conclusion. So let me read it for you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, my gospel meaning the gospel I've just laid out, the true gospel, <clears throat> and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So the book of Romans ends in chapter 16 with Paul's final greeting where we learn that commendation is good and right, that the Christian life is hard and therefore we need good friends and partners. Chapter 16 ends with Paul's final warning where we are called to watch out and avoid those who teach a different gospel and Paul's final doxology where he reminds us that the gospel strengthens us was revealed to us, saves us, and therefore we should worship and bring glory to the only wise God through his son Jesus. Would you pray with me? And we do. We do, Father. We bring you praise and glory and just want to lavish it in this time of response on you with our voices and with our hearts, with hearts that lean hard to you, we bring you glory and honor and praise and worship. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for entering our problem with the provision of Jesus and empowering us with your Holy Spirit. We thank you that we've been saved by mercy, but we continue to walk in mercy, presenting our bodies as living sacrifices. Thank you for good friends and partners in ministry. Thank you for patrons that come alongside of us. Thank you for calling us to ministry, for, for protection callings, to protect the flock from wolves that would love to come in. Help us with that as a ministry. Help us with that as a ministry. And I also pray that we'd be a blessing to the church in this city and elsewhere. That they would be thankful for us. May we be a commending people, I pray. So I thank you for your word. I thank you for the book of Romans. I thank you for what you've taught us. And now, we, now we, may we be people who walk in the assurance of the things that we have seen. May the, the things that we have been taught over these last couple of years just, just, 
just sink deep into our souls. Just sink deep into our souls. We just thank you. We love you. We desperately need more of you. And I pray now that as we worship you in this time of response, that you'd be pleased. That you would be pleased. Your spirit would rest on us, I pray. In Jesus' great name, amen.